All right. So we're going to go ahead and continue in our study. We have up our title slide. And we're in, a, if I want to do it in terms of the way textbooks often uh, say it, we're in a unit. Uh, unit two in my study, Doctrine of Man. And so our lesson today, lesson 10, the essential nature of man, which if I was reading that without knowing what material we're heading for, I'd be looking at it saying, what, you know, what are you, where are you going with that one? Because to me, that title, which is, by the way, the, the title of the chapter um, in Wayne Greer's book, so it's his work. To me, I look down and say, okay, yeah, what's that about? All right, right off that seems good. I find it successful if I push on my nose. But I have to explain myself because if I don't, especially in the recording, mm -hmm. they're wondering what's wrong with this guy. Why does he keep pushing on his nose like that? Alright. Well, where are we going with this? The next slide shall reveal what do we mean by essential nature of man? Well, it's really down to uh, these thoughts. Okay. I'll put all three points up here. Is man body, soul, and spirit? Is man body and soul? Or in other words, that dichotomy, of course the prefix is here, three, two, one. Tri, die, uh, mon, or mono, which is simply what they mean. For the dichotomy, is soul and spirit the same thing? Thus, there's body and soul, or you could say body and spirit. That's one view. So these are three views that are out there. Or is man just simply one thing? Do we have not? You know, it's all the same. Okay. Now, uh, I'll comment on that last one in a little bit, but that's really kind of outside scripture teaching that last one. Um, so we'll, uh, I'll describe that a little bit more in a moment. But I would say of the first two, uh, that Bible-believing Christians... Uh, can tend to hold to one of those first two. I don't remember the context of when it came up, but I just remember um, a discussion with Pastor Dean. I think it was actually in this room. It wasn't a long discussion. I don't even know if my memory's right. I just kind of have this memory feeling like it was in here. And I don't remember if it was just him and I or if it was some others in the room. I just uh, remember him, I think, saying something to the effect that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't real clear, like it could go either way. Like, like, does man have a body, soul, and spirit? Clearly all three of those. And so, now I don't want to misquote him, I wasn't quoting him by the way, as you can tell. But just going by that, I think he recognized or um, seemed to, um, you know, indicate uh, that Christians could differ on this and that the scriptures are not, um, I don't want to say that they're not, well, maybe I should say that they're not clear. Yeah, you know, I've heard it this way with uh, Christians, um, that there's some things in the Bible that we can all agree on, that we ought to all agree on because the Bible is uh, super clear on, but on, on some issues where good Christians who disagree on them. By good Christians, I mean by that ones who are putting forth, ones who are actually Christians. We're going to start with that because the Bible says that spiritual truths are spiritually discerned. 
uh, if there's no Holy Spirit in one's life, uh, then there's no ability to really have good discernment on the Word of God. But yet, the Bible doesn't tell us everything. Uh, God has given this, He's given us everything we need to know to live the Christian life successfully. That doesn't mean He's told us everything. There are some things that remain a mystery, such as in 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, Now we see through a glass darkly, a tinted window. Uh, sometime we'll be on the other side of that tinted window, we'll be in heaven, and then we'll see some things clearly. But in this life, uh, God has not said he's going to make us omniscient, where we'll know everything. And there's no reason for us to think we'll ever be omniscient. I, I don't know from the word of God that we'll ever understand everything. Just the way it is. Um, so, us not knowing everything, I think as Christians we got to cut each other slack. Uh, when especially it's a teaching that the Bible doesn't come right out and teach. And so, I've been around long enough now, I'm up in my 50s, and uh, I don't know what that means, I don't know how wise that means it is. And I know this though, I'm wiser than I once was, um, and I know more than I once did. <clears throat> I feel like I've been around long enough to hear enough examples from Christians who very strongly push a certain thought, but when you actually look in the scripture, the Bible doesn't actually say that. So, like for example, um, how about women should only wear skirts and dresses, women should not be in pants, so I would put that forth, uh, and almost very adamantly so. Okay, Bible verse please. Well, okay, women should not wear that, you know, like, some of the effect of wearing that which pertains to a man. Okay, so can I wear a kilt? Would that be okay? Uh, that's, that is very much a male style of dress in Scotland and England. The women don't wear kilts, I mean, they wear dresses. That, I mean, I guess you can split hairs as a kilt, just a skirt. Uh, and how about the time of Christ? The men didn't wear pants back then. There was no such animal. So, the, you know, what then should I, you know, should should we wear their style? So anyways, the point is, and I wouldn't sit here, I don't want to sit here and debate that topic long, because the point is the scriptures don't really say anything about dresses and skirts or pants. Um, those words don't appear in scripture, there's no synonym for those words. Um, and so, it's a logical conclusion, perhaps, someone will, of course we've had a message lately, I had, pastor's message has not inspired these thoughts at all, by the way. But it just happens to be that some of his lately has he's put forth those four categories. And the fact is that Christians, I think, get too strong on some categories um, that they probably, from the scripture, don't have a right to be adamant about. So here's the fact that the scripture doesn't come right out and say man has three parts or man has two. Uh, now, we can look at the scriptures and I think we could potentially draw some logical conclusions from it. Which brings me to a second thought. I think sometimes Christians can make the case very strongly in favor of a view, but it's not it, it possible in some cases to view either not well thought out, perhaps intellectually a little lazy, so maybe it's not well thought out because there wasn't a lot of work put into that, 
or maybe it's incomplete because there was not really a consideration of the counter arguments to the view. So sometimes it's really easy to stand up, uh, even if like say a pastor, if I was a pastor, I could stand up from the church and pound the pulpit about a particular view when there's actually some very reasonable counter arguments that are scriptural based against that view. And it might be that neither the view nor the counter arguments are are um, are clearly uh, indicated by Scripture. It could be that either way you go, you're kind of drawing certain conclusions from Scripture. My point is, though, sometimes it's really easy to make the case for your argument when no one's on the other side pointing out the flaws of it. So, uh, thus, I think, is the case of one of the arguments that I'll uh, share today, that, that there's not really a discussion of the counter-arguments against it. Okay, so, often it's that, often I think that's the case, that you can, when only one side is there, like say it's Republican and Democrat, you can have a, you know, you can have a, a big rally where you can slam the other side, but sometimes you find out, well, the position of the other side, they've actually got some reasons why they hold to that position that if you heard them, you may not completely disagree with what they're thinking. I'm Republican, conservative, but actually, Democrats sometimes have some good ideas. They're not, it's not like it's black versus white, good versus evil. Um, sometimes Republicans have some lousy ideas. Um, so, it's, so I think it is sometimes. When you don't hear why the other side isn't going with you on something, you don't always know, okay, well, oh, wait a minute. Okay, I never thought about that one. Hmm. Okay. That kind of shoots a hole in my argument. So I never thought about that one before. So, well, anyways, uh, I think we'll see some examples of these uh, come up in today's lesson. Okay. So, these are three views uh, that are out there. Uh, trichotomy is the idea that man's soul includes his intellect, his emotions, and his will. So, we'll think. So I'll repeat that a couple times. Just to get that in our minds, so if, if you're a trichotomist, they often associate with the soul, the intellect, emotions, and will. Okay, and then they maintain that all people have a soul and that the different elements of the soul can either serve God or be yielded uh, to sin. They argue that a man's spirit is a higher faculty in man that comes alive when a person becomes a Christian. Uh, the spirit of a person then would be that part of him or her that most directly worships and prays to God. So a man, before he's a Christian, his spirit is dead. But then the spirit is made alive when he becomes a Christian. And that would be a common view of, uh, of those that hold to a trichotomist position. So um, an example verse would be Romans 8 verse 10, if Christ is in you, Although your bodies are dead, you're dead in sin, your spirits are alive because of righteousness. So that'd be one verse uh, that is used to support that. Now, I'll mention, because uh, I think I'll, I think it's usually good in a study uh, like this, uh, if one identifies their positions ahead of time. So Grudem has done that in a study. He's identified that he leans towards a dichotomist or dichotomy. Now, he makes some statements in there that I 
did not confirm or, or, or look up or think that much about. Uh, he identifies the dichotomous position as probably the, the more mainstream, uh, the one that um, intellectually has what people are looking at this from a kind of a, um, a studious intellectual, I'm looking for some other word uh, standpoint, uh, scholarly, that's what I'm looking for, from that the, the more those who hold to this put forth a scholarly argument, most of the scholarly arguments lean towards this position. Okay? Now, I don't, I haven't confirmed that, I don't know what that means. Sometimes it's easy to throw that out without having support for it. That drives me up the road about, or drives me up, what, no, drives me up the wall about um, politicians. They say, they make statements um, that may or may not be true. That, and the question is, do they actually have support for that? So now, to put together a systematic theology book, and that's quite a thick book, and there's a lot of work that goes into that. I, I get the sense from what I learned is that he's read a lot of different sources and a lot of different positions. Um, so I would tend to think that I would kind of trust him on that, uh, but I did not go out and double check that statement. Now here's what Grudem says, uh, well actually let me uh, mention about dichotomy before I go on to monism. Uh, spirit is not a separate part of man, but simply another term for soul. And that both terms are used interchangeably in scripture to talk about the immaterial part of man, or the non-physical part of man, uh, the part that lives on after our bodies die. So basically what dichotomy is, is that soul and spirit are the same thing. Okay, then you get monism, and this is what Grudem says about monism. Outside the realm of evangelical thoughts, this isn't really Bible-believing Christians that holds to this, uh, we find yet another view, the idea that man cannot exist at all apart from the physical body, and therefore uh, there can be no separate existence for any soul after the body dies. Okay. Then he does make this note, now it was possible, I, I think, you know, solid Bible-believing Christians don't hold to this one, is there any Christian that holds to it? Well, he does say this thought, although this view can't allow for the resurrection of the whole person at some future time. Yeah, but I think the scripture's talking, absent from the body is present with the Lord. Um, there's, there's some pretty strong scriptural reasons not to go with this view. And we're not going to talk about that view, uh, really, much more than what I've just said. Uh, we're going to actually talk about trichotomy and dichotomy uh, today in our studies. Okay. So what we're going to start off with on our next slide is just looking at some scriptural verses uh, that share some thoughts about soul and spirit. And then after that, we're going to go into arguments in favor of trichotomy and then um, responses to those arguments in favor of trichotomy. Now, I'm not sure in this, um, this is my own opinion now, I'm not sure... Um, how, um, how helpful these particular thoughts are. Um, in other words, I think a person can function well in life if they did not come to a strong decision on this issue. So 
I don't personally see this as one of those topics that it's very crucial for you to get it right. Um, so again, that's just my own view on it. But still, you sometimes come across this in different ways. Um, so it could be helpful to think it through a little bit. Um, it, um, it could be helpful as we read about soul and spirit to have some understanding of what's there. So it's not that I don't think there's any usefulness to what we're going to study this morning, but I don't think it's a life-changing uh, topic. Uh, now, that doesn't mean, though, that there aren't some that think that way. In fact, I think uh, one, well, one site that I quote that in favor of the trichotomy view um, does tend to talk about it as it's a very critical thing to know and affect certain things. And so I never really got from them, or even on my part, that they made a good case for that. But, and you can tell by the way that I'm talking that I mean trichotomy, which refers to the trichotomous view. Uh, but I can't say that I care about it that much. Um, someone wants to be a, di a trichotomist, whereas I mean first dichotomist. <laughs> yeah. uh, but like I said, the one thing that I care about more is when people make uh, their case through, which they do it in a way that is not well put together. I would like to see people put together a case and acknowledge their own case's weaknesses, acknowledge the strengths of the other case, and not be more adamant than they really have a right to be. I would prefer to see it handled that way um, if, it's, if someone's uh, taking the trichotomous view or the dichotomous view. All right, so here's some examples, and we'll uh, have five different points on this slide. Uh, Bible verses to touch on some different things. I think the first two kind of overlap, but the first one here, uh, Scripture uses soul and spirit interchangeably. So these are some verses uh, that Wayne Grudem points out as supporting this idea. So for example, John chapter 12, verse 27. And if you want to turn there, you can, or if you want to just listen, that's, you know, both are obviously are fine. Um, but I'm slightly pausing as I say them because some people might prefer to see them themselves. But for example, in John 12, 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. Whereas in a very similar context in the next chapter, so this is chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus was troubled in spirit. So he was troubled in his soul, and then the next chapter he was troubled in his spirit. Now, this is an example of one of those things. I don't think that that proves that they're one and the same. Uh, but it, these things you stop and think, are they one and the same? It seems to be possible there. Similarly, we read Mary's words in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 47. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, again, Luke, Luke 1, 46-47, Mary says, My soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Now this is actually a verse that sometimes trichotomists use to uh, support their views. Um, pointing out, and I'll read, uh, I'll read a commentary on this uh, by, I think, a pastor that posts some stuff on his own website, uh, how he describes this verse. Um, but Grudem makes uh, this statement. This seems to be uh, quite an evident example of Hebrew parallelism. 
in our Hebrew parallelism, you can see this especially in the book of Proverbs. Oftentimes you have a first part of a verse stated, and then a second part of the verse states kind of the same thing, but differently. In this example, Mary's soul magnifies the Lord, and she says, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So a parallelism, the parallelism, I'm magnifying God, I'm rejoicing in God. And so I find that extremely helpful in many of the Psalms and Proverbs because if you're trying to understand the verse, often understanding one half of the verse clues you into what the other half of the verse was indicating. And so uh, that, that again is a very common thing in Hebrew scriptures and of course the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Um, so is this a verse in the New Testament following kind of that pattern? Uh, is Mary saying, my soul magnifies the Lord? And another way to say that, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. I'm exalting Him, I'm magnifying Him, I'm rejoicing in Him, I'm praising Him. Just different ways of saying the same thing. Grudem says that he uh, believes that that's what this is indicating, a poetic device uh, that does this, uh, where there, one is kind of a synonym for the other, therefore spirit and soul would be synonyms for each other. Okay, so uh, it says the interchangeability of terms also explained uh, why people who have died and gone to heaven or hell can be called either spirits or souls. For example, Hebrews 12, 23, uh, the spirit of just men are made perfect also in verses like 1 Peter 3.19, spirits that are in prison. But in other passages, the word soul use, such as in Revelation 6.9, I saw, saw the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they have borne. Or in Revelation 24, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. So there's some uh, passages that talk about souls and some that talk about spirits in relation to those that have, you know, the, the God, the part of us that uh, goes on. Okay. Now, the next point on the slide, I think, overlaps this, and I think it still kind of seems to be the interchangeability of the terms. Okay. But this one continues some of the top thoughts we just talked about. At death, the soul departs or the spirit departs. So here's some examples. Um, Let's see. Okay. Problem is I'm looking and saying, hmm, where's the note that I expected? I got ahead of myself and shifted a page over quicker than I thought. It's over here. Okay. So we'll look at some verses that talk about the soul in this fashion. Then we'll look at some verses that talk about the spirit in this fashion. So regarding the soul, Genesis 35, 18, it came to pass as Rachel's soul was in the pardon. So she died. Talks about, uses the word soul. By the way, in the Bible, there's a clear word um, that's translated soul and a clear word that's translated spirit. Same thing in the New Testament. So there are different words here. But in English, there are different words. Soul and spirit. It's just the question is, do they mean the same thing? Because we can talk about vittles and food. <coughs> But we don't understand vittles and food to be something like different. They're just two different words for the same thing. They are different words. Soul and spirit are different words in the Hebrew, and they are different words in the Greek. 
The question is, are they different things? Okay. So what about the word soul? We uh, saw when Rachel uh, died, her soul was departing. Uh, 1 Kings 17, 23. So Elijah in this passage is praying for a little dead boy. And in his prayer, he prays, let this child's soul come unto him, into him again. Okay. Then in uh, regarding the Messiah in Isaiah 53, one of the great passages in the <laughs> Old Testament that uh, talks about the Messiah, said, He hath poured out his soul unto death. Or in Luke 12, 20, uh, this is a passage regarding uh, a man who was not ready for death, or the man is not ready for death, or to stand before God the judge. So the God said unto him, Thou fool, this night your soul shall be required of thee. So you have a number of passages there talking at the point of death, that they're being, it's a time when the soul is departing, or in the case of the one, uh, it's already departed when Elijah is praying, let it come back again. But now let's look at some similar language with the word spirit. Okay, Psalm 32, verse 5. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. That is said by um, uh, the psalmist David, uh, but it's also quoted by Jesus in Luke 23, 46, when he's on the cross. He says that when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, uh, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now we'll read a verse later on where um, in death it talks about giving up the ghost. Okay? Um, but that's just, it's the same word in uh, the, the Greek. But Ecclesiastes 12:7, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. John 19:30, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Well, that's the word spirit there. Um, even though translated as ghost, same thing. Uh, not a different word. And why the translators chose to translate ghost and spirit in different spots. Okay. Acts 7, verse 59. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, um, saying, of course, and they stoned Stephen, Stephen, who's praying, calling upon God while being stoned. What did he say? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So um, Grudem points out these verses, uh, and uh, just to make sure everyone's caught up to speed, we're kind of looking at uh, two views that Christians hold to. One's called the trichotomous view, which would be that man has a body, soul, and spirit, and they're not all the same thing. Well, that soul and spirit are not the same thing. And some hold to a dichotomous view, which is these two are the same thing. So we're looking at scripture, and uh, right now we're looking at some verses in scripture that seem to indicate the points that are on the slide. Okay, and we just finished the one that there's verses that talk about, well, when you die, the soul departs, or other verses when you die, the spirit departs. Okay. All right, so next point on the slide, man is either body and soul or body and spirit. Okay, so there's a number of verses that use one or the other. Matthew 10, 28. Fear not those which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Or 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, 
to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. James 2.26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And 1 Corinthians 7, by the way, that one's kind of interesting. Um, for the body, as the body without the uh, spirit is dead, I mean, everyone has a spirit. The trichotomous view often is that um, natural man, before he's saved, does, the spirit's dead. So, But anyways, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 34, the, uh, the <clears throat> speaking about an unmarried, unmarried women, the unmarried women does not care for the things of the Lord that she may be whole, holy both in body and in spirit. And there again, um, focusing on body and spirit. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Um, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now the point was this, is the Bible often speaks of having a body and a spirit, or a body and a soul on that. And I know there was a lot of different thoughts that came up in those verses, but we were just focusing on uh, that one. Uh, there are verses in the Bible that speak of both the soul and the spirit can sin. Grudem says those who hold to trichotomy will usually agree that the soul can sin since they think that the soul includes the intellect, the emotions, and the will. The trichotomist, however, generally thinks of the spirit as pure, uh, or purer than the soul, and when renewed, as free from sin and responsive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. This understanding, which Crudem says, which sometimes finds its way into popular Christian preaching and writing, well, that's been my observation. I have heard the trichotomist view um, out there, decent amount. Okay, it's not really supported by the biblical text, Grudem says. Uh, there, again, there would be Christians saying, oh, yes, it is. Okay, so. When Paul encourages the Corinthians to cleanse themselves, from every defilement of body and spirit in 2 Corinthians, yeah, 2 Corinthians 7 1. That's one example. Why would you have to cleanse yourself of every defilement of spirit if that's that pure form? Uh, similarly, he speaks of the unmarried women who is concerned with how to be holy in body and spirit. 1 Corinthians 7 34. So he points out a number of other verses, such as Psalm 78, uh, which says that rebellious Israel, their spirit was not faithful to God. And Isaiah 29, 24, of those who err in their spirit. So he's pointing out these verses because, again, um, sometimes the thought in trying to define soul and spirit separately is to define the word spirit as something that's more pure. It, it's basically almost like um, a spiritual life. And um, before you had that spirit, you were just dead in sins, had no spiritual life at all. This is more pure because now it's, it's that which reaches out to God, that which um, has fellowship with Him. It's a spiritual life in us. And yet, does the Bible make that distinction? Well, the last point on this slide, soul and spirit are said to do the same things. Again, this is 
I think kind of that interchangeability of them. Okay, so everything that the soul is said to do, Grudem says, the spirit is also said to do. And everything that the spirit uh, is said to do, the soul is also said to do. So here's um, some examples. Uh, let's see. Actually, let me read it. Yeah, from Mark 2.8 first. And Mark speaks of perceiving in his spirit. Now, what would we think of the word perceiving mean? Understanding, right? Uh, perhaps, perhaps maybe thinking about understanding, discerning, getting it. But it says it's, he was perceiving in his spirit. Well, again, the trichotomy view holds to the idea that the soul is the one that's the intellect, the intellect, the will, and the emotions. But it seems that the spirit in Mark 2, uh, 8, uh, Mark speaks of Jesus as perceiving in his spirit. Okay. Um, when the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God in Romans 8, 16, our spirits and re receive and understand that witness. Again, the intellect, the, the, the understanding. Um, which is a function of knowing something. In fact, our spirits seem to know our thoughts uh, quite deeply. For Paul asks, For what man uh, knoweth the things of man, okay, save the spirit of man which is in him. So Grudem uh, kind of wraps up this section by saying this, The point of these verses is not to say that it is the spirit rather than the soul that feels and, and thinks things, but rather that soul and spirit are both terms used of the immaterial side of people generally, and it is difficult to see any real distinction between the use of the terms. But again, not all would agree with that. So I'm gonna put up all the points. There's actually seven points in this, four on the first slide and three on the second, but let me put all four here. So I thought it was interesting, like I said, I came across a website um, where the person is putting forth the trichotomist viewpoint, and he actually mentions in his argument the first two passages that are up there. He doesn't mention the other two, uh, but I thought maybe let a trichotomist uh, speak for themselves. Uh, I identified myself a little at the beginning of the lesson as I would lean towards a dichotomist view. Mainly, uh, I didn't know if I really said strongly why, I guess I've just not seen the case for the trichotomous view as a very strong case. It just, I just, I don't know, it seems like, like, okay, maybe, but it certainly didn't make the case very well. That's kind of where I land on it. But here's what um, one says. Uh, it says there's two key verses. First, uh, Thessalonians 5.23 says, and the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's an example where I think things are overstated or stated stronger than they have a right to say. This crucial verse proves that the soul and the spirit are not the same thing. It's like... So body, soul, and spirit be preserved complete. 
it's real easy to say a statement like that. It proves. And that's often what happens when you're only, like there's only one side of the argument in the room. And you can state things very, uh, very strongly when everyone in the room agrees with you. Sometimes they call it preaching to the choir. And so that's what can happen in church a lot. If you got a church where they're all kind of on the same page, you can pound the pulpit stating a position when you don't have anyone there challenging it. And so I just think, uh, unfortunately, that happens too often. So it's, it's very easy to say that this that proves, done, end of argument, can't argue with that. The Bible said body, soul, and spirit. Uh, but I think there are some reasons to um, be able to point out some potential other things that means. He goes on to say, in Greek, the original language of the New Testament, the conjunction and in the phrases spirit and soul and body indicates these are three different things. The body is clearly distinct from the soul in the same way the soul is also distinct from the spirit. Then he comments on Hebrews 4.12, uh, which says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing uh, asunder or the dividing apart of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The joints and marrow in our physical body are closely related, but they're distinct and can be separated. In the same way, our soul and spirit can be divided by the Word of God, showing that they're also distinct from each other. The different functions of our soul and our spirits. Now, he goes on to make some statements about, okay, so now he's made the argument they are different. He mentions uh, some ways in which they're different. Now that we've seen that the soul and spirit are different, as if the argument's done and proven, we need to realize their functions are also different. The function of our spirit, the deepest part of our being, is related to the spiritual realm. It enables us to contact and receive God himself. John 4.24 shows us our spirit is able to contact God. Here's what that verse says. God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So God being spirit means his substance is spirit. Our spirit is that part of our being that corresponds to God and has the ability to contact, fellowship with, and worship him. John 3, 5 shows us our spirit has the ability to receive God. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. When we were born again, we were born of the Spirit in our human spirit, not in our soul. We received the Lord, and He came to live in our spirit. So, what about our soul? Again, this is still this uh, website's uh, uh, putting forth the trichotomous view. So, what about our soul? Our soul is who we are, our personality, and is composed of our mind, our emotion, and our will. God created us within these faculties so that we can express Him. God's purpose in creating human beings with a spirit and a soul was that they would receive Him in their spirit and express Him through their soul. And then he quotes the verse we read in Luke chapter 1 uh, about Mary. He says that that passage, Luke 1, 46-47, shows the difference of the different functions of the soul and spirit in Mary's praise of the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has exalted in God, my Savior. 
To magnify means to enlarge or express something hidden for all to see. Uh, note, um, let's see. Actually, let me pass over that part. Okay, so first, Mary's spirit exalted in God. Then her soul magnified the Lord. Her praise to God issued from her spirit and was expressed through her soul. Her spirit was filled with joy in God her Savior, and her soul manifested that joy for the magnifying of the Lord. She believed and acted in her spirit, which directed her soul. So the function of our spirit is to contact God and receive God, and the function of our full soul is to express God. All right, I just read that and think, well, I just don't see that the passage that clearly is to be understood that way. It's not a dumb moment like obviously has to be. To me, it makes more sense that these are synonyms of each other, too. Uh, again, the verse says, um, she exalted God in her spirit, she magnified God in her soul. Is there some clear distinction between exalting and magnifying? I think she's praising the Lord. She's praising the Lord in her spirit, she's praising the Lord in her soul. <clears throat> At best, I would say that you could say it doesn't clearly say trichotomy or dichotomy. Um, and so, I if you're if you're a trichotomist, I mean, I could see how you can take it that way. But is that clearly the only thing that that can mean? And we'll come back to the First Thessalonians five twenty three passage. What are the thoughts on uh, that one? Is there, as that verse indicates, is there body and soul and spirit? Is that what it's indicating, or is there another thought that could be? Uh, shared there. Right. So anyways, that's uh, from this individual's uh, website, and I think it confirms a couple of things. For one, is that they see the soul as having to do with the will, the mind, the intellect, the emotions, and the spirit having to do with something that was not alive before he became a Christian that can most directly communicate with God, the spiritual life in us is something different. And so from someone who is proposing that view, uh, they, they indicate that yes, they agree with Wayne Grudem on those thoughts. All right, what about the 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, through chapter 3, verse 4? Uh, well, those verses talk about the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So it's talking about a natural man uh, there in verses that follow. It's going to use the word soul and the word spirit in these. So this passage speaks of different kinds of people. Those who are of the flesh, such as in chapter 3, uh, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Uh, as to fleshly people. Uh, those who are unspiritual, such as in chapter 2, verse 14, um, which again uh, talked about uh, those who are, uh, have not received the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness unto them, they can't discern them. Basically, uh, they're not, they don't have spiritual discernment. They're unspiritual. 
and then those who are spiritual, such as in chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, but he that is spiritual judgeth or discerneth all things. Okay, in that verse. So do not these categories suggest that there are different sorts of people, the non-Christians who are of the flesh, unspiritual Christians who follow the desires of their uh, souls, and more, uh, more mature Christians who follow the desires of their spirits. So does this passage, uh, would not this suggest this? Uh, some, again, would point out, but would this not suggest that the soul and spirit are different elements of our nature? Um, or are they completely separate things? Okay. Uh, so, in this passage, again, the question is, when you when you have the words, and, and actually we're going to come back and look at uh, some of the words a little more closely in a little bit, but does this actually indicate soul and spirit are completely two separate things, or just aspects, you know, are just being used as aspects of our being, that we could be, someone could be spiritual or non-spiritual, someone can be, uh, even a Christian can be unspiritual, can be fleshly minded. Because uh, that's what it says there, um, and let's see, let me see the verse. Uh, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as babes in Christ. So the unspiritual person here is actually a Christian, they're just immature spiritually. Or 1 Corinthians 14, 4, For if I pray in an unknown tongue, being spoken of here, my spirit prays. Okay, but my understanding is unfruitful. So is he not implying that his mind does something different than his spirit? And would not this support the trichotomous argument that our mind and our thinking are to be assigned to our souls, not to our spirit? Okay, so those are kind of arguments in favor of the trichotomous view and what might be said about them. Again, the verse says, For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful, as if there's a separate thing from my soul, which is my, has to be my intellect, my will, and my spirit, which is doing the more spiritual side of the praying. So those are some arguments in favor of the trichotomous view. Okay, but then on our next slide, these are, oh, I forgot about this. Ah, I was about to say, let's look at some responses to those arguments. No, no, like I said, there's four points on one side, three on the next. Let me put up all three here. Argument from personal experience. Now, I never really care for this argument. Uh, this is not uncommon amongst Christians to have argument from personal experience. Uh, problem I have with that is how do I know the reliability of your experience um, if, if you use that as one of the arguments. So I never care for this type of argument much at all. Uh, Bible says, for example, we have a more sure word of prophecy. We can be sure in the word of God. More sure than what? Well, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men. <clears throat> Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. There was old time prophecy that was written word of God that came from God himself. But what happened at other times? They heard uh, from the prophet, thus saith the Lord. The prophets ever lie. Sometimes. Unfortunately, uh, the Bible gives us some examples of prophets doing things that are, are wrong. We have the word of God is confirmed as a more sure word of prophecy. So if someone comes to me, even if they're a prophet, and tells me, hey, I've got something from the Lord through my personal experience, I don't always know what to make of that. 
I've heard examples of that. Um, I know of a Christian, which I understand to be a um, genuine Christian, someone that used to attend our church years ago. I have no reason to doubt their salvation and um, person that loves the Lord, but did speak about a healing incident um, once that they had where there was a um, some sort of back problem. I don't know if it was an injury or what. This is a long time ago, like 20 plus years ago. But someone had prayed and laid hands on them and where they touched a warm sensation and some sort of a healing. So what's my thought on that? I mean, how can I comment on that? I, it's not my back. It wasn't my warm sensation. I don't know what that means. I mean, it wasn't exactly as he understood it. Maybe. I don't know. And that's the way I feel about personal experiences. How could I comment on someone else's personal experience? I mean, how do I know that there's not, a, you know, I mean, that, that it's comp they completely understand their own experience? I don't know. I'm not even sure I understand my own experiences. And do people sometimes not understand things the way they are intended to be? I saw Pharaoh throw his, Pharaoh's magicians throw their rods down, they became snakes. Thus, the religion of Egypt must be true. Is that the conclusion I have to draw from that? Um, obviously, I didn't see that personally for those that took it that way. Um, but, I mean, yeah, there's things that are hard to explain sometimes. Like, you know, well, what does that mean? You see things that are hard to explain. Something's unusual. What does that prove? Um, many trichotomists say that they have a spiritual perception, Grudem says, a spiritual awareness of God's presence which affects them in a way that they know to be different from their ordinary thinking processes and different from their emotional experiences. Okay, well, I'll move on from that point. Our spirit is what makes us different from animals. Some maintain that it is the presence of a spirit that separates us from the animals. And the uh, last point, our spirit is what comes alive at regeneration. Trichotomists also argue that when we become Christians, that our spirits come alive. And if Christ be, and here's a verse, uh, Romans 8.10, if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So quickly, without much time left, let's take a look at some thoughts that respond to uh, these points. And especially the first four. Let's look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 first. And um, I'll try to get through this quickly so I'll do less commenting. Uh, the phrase, your spirit and soul and body is by itself inconclusive. This is Bruno. Paul could simply be piling up synonyms for emphasis, as it is sometimes done elsewhere in Scripture. For example, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Okay. Does this mean that the soul is different from the mind? Because that's the case that was made up in the other one. You have body and soul and spirit. The emphasis is on the word and. Thus, they're three distinct things. Well, but the thought in the trichotomous view, though, is soul and mind go together. But does this other verse now say that soul and mind are different? I'll read it again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Are they three different things? 
Is that what is indicated by the Greek? Okay. Um, the problem is even greater in Mark 12.30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. If we go on to... Uh, let's see, actually, let me do that up. So, if we accepted that, I'm going to skip here. Well, then you have like five or six parts here. If they're all distinct. So, it's not conclusive. All right, uh, I'll move on. Hebrews 4.12, the next one, this verse, which talks about the Word of God piercing to the division or dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, um, is best understood in a familiar way in this passage. The author is not saying that the Word of God can divide soul from spirit, but he is using a number of terms, soul, spirit, joints, marrow, thoughts and intentions of the heart that speak of the deep inward parts of our being that are not hidden from God or from his penetrating uh, from the penetrating power of the word of God if we wish to call these our soul then scripture pierces into the midst of it and divides it and discovers so it's not an automatic there like okay oh look it's dividing the soul from the spirit to me that's a little bit intellectually um I don't want to, I'm not trying to be insulted at all. Especially if anyone's a trichotomous viewpoint. I don't mind if you are. Um, if one is strongly says that from the verse intellectually and scripturally, it's going further than you can be dogmatic on. I think it's, uh, if one doesn't consider the options, then maybe one intellectually hasn't considered, you know, all the things it could mean. Okay. Um, I think sometimes we take things out of context, and that's one of the big problems. We jump to conclusions, because in reading this passage, in our minds, if it's about trying to figure out if there's body, soul, and spirit, what's the context of the passage? What's the major point here? And the major point of this passage is that the Word of God can, can dig right down and help discern things, get down to the deepest parts of us and discern truth from error and so forth. Was it meant to be a commentary on whether soul and spirit are the same? Or was it making a point otherwise? Um, in all these cases, the Word of God is so powerful that it will search out and expose all disobedience and lack of submission to God, Grudem says. In any case, soul and spirit are not thought of as separate parts. They are simply additional terms to our innermost being. Well, I think it's a legitimate way to understand that. Um, and it's not so... It's not such an obvious, you can't come up with another thought. All right, um, in the 1 Corinthians 2.14 passage, uh, I think I'll, I don't want to do this, I, I need to dismiss here so I, don't, I can't take much longer. Um, I think I'll just have, I'll go ahead and end it there. And maybe i'll think about whether next week we uh, continue that or not um maybe i'll come back to that but i just need to stop right there okay any closing thoughts on your part okay so i kind of said this at the beginning i, I didn't see this as having some major truths that would be extremely critical although some of the trichotomists would say that it's extremely critical because it's understanding the spiritual side of you. Um, but to me, one of the things that I looked at as um, I think most important is to be careful about how we do our Bible study. 
and that we don't jump to conclusions and that we think things through. Uh, we're not lazy intellectually. We don't things, take things out of context. We try to understand them in the context. And even I have some more examples of that. We'll see if we get that next week. All right, we'll go ahead and close our time in prayer.